Maryland-born John Beauchamp Jones was an established editor and novelist when Civil War began. In May 1861, he accepted a high-ranking clerkship in the Confederate War Department. And for the next four years, he kept a meticulous day-by-day journal. Nothing escaped Jones's eyes and ears. Verbal descriptions of individuals, confidential reports, personal opinions, rumors, weather, inflation, newspaper articles, life inside the bloated Confederate capital, all received attention. A rebel war clerk's diary appeared posthumously in 1866. This mass of information has remained only partially used because of the absence of identification of persons and events within it, as well as a lack of an index. Well, today's speaker has edited a new edition of the diary, which includes a long introduction, 2,700 endnotes, and comprehensive indices containing references to individuals and subjects. And today, we're fortunate to have with us that editor, James I. Robertson, Jr. Dr. Robertson, or Bud, as he is known, I think, universally, is a noted scholar on the American Civil War, alumni distinguished professor emeritus at Virginia Tech, and former executive director of the Virginia Center for Civil War Studies. He also served as executive director of the U.S. Civil War Centennial Commission and as a member of the Virginia Sesquicentennial of the American Civil War Commission. He has been a longtime friend of the VHS. In fact, we were remembering before this lecture, he gave the first lecture in this room, <laughs> which was 10 years ago in 2006. He was also formerly on our board of trustees. Bud is the author and editor of numerous books, including The Stonewall Brigade, Soldiers Blue and Gray, Stonewall Jackson, The Man, The Soldier, The Legend, After the Civil War, The Heroes, Villains, Soldiers, and Civilians Who Changed America, and A Rebel War Clerk's Diary at the Confederate States Capitol. Please join me in a very warm VHS welcome to Bud Robertson. Thank you very much, Paul, for that warm introduction. And whoa, I thought uh, this being noon, I'd be talking to 50 people who were willing to wait a little while before they had lunch. I came in here, and it's a, it's a delightful mob for which I'm very, very grateful. It's always a distinct honor to do anything with the Virginia Historical Society, and I'm just so pleased and humbled by your attendance. And on behalf of uh, the state's sesquicentennial commission, I want to thank each of you who participated in any way as we remembered the 150th anniversary of the Civil War. Uh, as I've said many times publicly and in, as a proud member of that commission, uh, America's sesquicentennial was Virginia. We honored it all by ourselves, basically. And thanks to the leadership of Speaker of the House, William Howe, we uh, had a tremendously successful program. And we couldn't have had it without your help. And I'm extremely grateful to those of you who pitched in. Uh, it's just a, a pleasure to be here. Um, I was looking, uh, looking around and um, trying to think of something funny to say. And, uh, but uh, I think in these august surroundings uh, with this distinguished audience, I'll just stay, stay strictly to the game. Um, <laughs> People keep diaries 
for a variety of reasons. Personal gratification, a sense of history, memory aids, hopes for future publication and fame, or maybe just for the private enjoyment of family and friends. Diaries provide a uh, unique sense of immediacy. They tend to be day-by-day -day chronicles rather than a letter's periodic summation. Journals can give a quality of completeness not found in spasmodic correspondence. Diaries also afford the writer the opportunity to return thereafter and fine-tune entries with additional reflections. Classic case in point being Murray Chestnut's diary. We don't know how little or how much of it she actually wrote. It's been through so many refinements, shall we say. The Civil War marked the first time in American history when large numbers of individuals recorded their observations of that great war, a war that exploded between North and South, a war the likes of which none of them had ever imagined. And so with momentous events swirling in a new, unknown world, uh, people thought they should be remembered, and they began to chronicle them day by day, and the great age of diary keeping began. Now, Confederate literature contains a number of well-known journals by non-combatants. The collection of writings by Mrs. Chestnut are rambling thoughts too often about herself. J Judith McGuire's fascinating diary of refugee life in Virginia, which I edited a couple of years ago, tends to modulate between substantive and sermonic entries. If you're an Episcopalian with a love of history, you'll love Mrs. McGuire's diary. If you're a Baptist, uh, I don't know. <laughs> The wartime diaries of Confederate administrators Josiah Gorgas and Robert G.H. Keene are disappointing both in scope and in depth. But the longest, most revealing, most quoted diary in Civil War scholarly works has long been known only to the scholars themselves and to rare book collectors. And this diary came from the pen of a Merlinder who was both a novelist and a journalist. And nowadays, there may not be a whole lot of difference between the two. <laughs> but he went south in the spring of 1861 because he was among the few who saw what was about to explode would be something the likes of which no one had ever seen. And he would spend the entire Civil War <clears throat> as a chief clerk to five successive secretaries of war for the Southern Confederacy, and the novice name was John Beauchamp Jones. Uh, there's a lot about that name we still worry about. I have to contemplate. Did he use John or did he use Beauchamp for a middle name? In one love letter to his uh, wife-to-be, he used Beauchamp as the name, first name. And we're not even sure, not absolutely sure, that Jones was his last name. In any event, 18 months after the war ended, Jones's incredibly detailed journal was published, A Rebel War Clerk's Diary, published in two volumes, consisting of 852 pages of small type. It was the first personal narrative of consequence to appear after the Civil War in book form. Jones's unique wartime position enabled him to see the continual strife between cabinet members the fighting between generals, the military, and the government, 
the own often lonely actions of President Jefferson Davis, if you've ever been wooed away by the moonlight and magnolia blossoms of the Gone with the Wind era, Jones will shock you because he will quickly point out that the Southern Confederacy was born in confusion and died in chaos. Now, sales of his book <coughs> after the war <coughs> were small for two simple reasons. The North had won the war. It didn't give a hoot about what had happened in the South during the war years. And most Southerners who were penniless, the few who could have afforded the book, were shocked and angered by the negative thoughts and statements of Jones. And so the first printing quickly went away. And for 14 decades, the journal has been a rare source, uh, found only in big-time libraries. But every scholar who does work on the Civil War in the East, maybe perhaps in the West as well, but every scholar who does research in Virginia, every scholar who does work in, on Richmond, sooner or later has to ask himself the question, I've done it, my colleagues have done it for decades, what does Jones say about this? And then you start the laborious job of going through those pages, hunting for his comments. They will be there. You've just got to find them, and they will be quotable if you do find them. Still, the Jones book has remained among the top dozen primary sources for any and every aspect of the Confederate States. Jones meticulously followed the progress of the war as it was received and recorded by official reports. He quoted newspapers. He subscribed to all four of the Richmond locals, and he quoted continually from them. He engaged in a number of personal conversations, or one-on-one, -on -one, with the great powers of the Confederacy. And wonderfully, he was a, uh, a sweetheart for picking up rumors. He loved to quote rumors, to speculate. And that makes it a historian's dream, because for social historians like myself, you, you see into him. You see the feelings of the people, the temper of the times, so to speak. In addition to military situations, Jones commented about anything and everything. Politics, society, economics, fluctuating morale, even the weather. He's a great chronicler of the weather. Look up his daily entries. He'll tell you what's going, how the weather is. Now, other reasons exist for the high value of this long underestimated diary. The entries cover every day of the American Civil War. There is no gap. And you find large gaps in the, in the Chestnut Journal, for example. Jones never left Richmond, the southern capital. He was therefore a constant spectator to men and events in a swollen, bustling city that was both the heart of the Confederacy and the principal target of Union military might. As a high-level secretary at the Center of Military Planning, Jones watched history unfold from an extraordinary perspective. And the journal is likewise important for its attention to uh, most of minor topics, to a host of minor topics, I should say, rarely mentioned in Civil War history. Uh, his eyes and ears missed nothing. Weather would be one thing he captured. Inflation was another. And too often that is overlooked in the history of Civil War Richmond. Prices went out of sight. Inflation at least 1,000% in four years of war. 
Because Jones's salary barely enabled him to stay a step above poverty, he carefully studied the costs of food, clothing, household goods as galloping inflation slowly consumed Richmond. And what makes a level war clerk's diary even more useful is Jones himself. A pre-war journalistic career instilled in him keen powers of observation as well as uh, proficiency in writing skills. At the time of the Civil War, Jones was in his early 50s. He possessed a maturity that elevated him well above the flightedness and the emotionalism characteristic of diaries, and we all know of them, written by observers who were in their immature years. Teenagers uh, popped out doing diaries at that time, which were published, and some of them show uh, the adolescents painfully. For example, Virginia teenager Sally Brock was enthralled by the nighttime excitement following Virginia's secession from the Union. Miss Brock stood on Church Hill and accordingly wrote in her diary on, on the night uh, in question, rockets were flashing in all directions, Roman candles darted myriads of stars, as far as the eye could see gleam torches, and the dim transparency shone like illuminated squares of vapor or gigantic uh, fireflies. Jones, right down the street, was writing in his diary, we have a gay illumination tonight, this is wrong, we had better save the candles for a better day. <laughs> Jones's background is a combination of mystery, failure, and limited success. We know absolutely nothing about his ancestry. Uh, a graduate student at the University of South Carolina in 1937 hunted down everything he could find, and I hunted down everything subsequently, and between him and me, there is just nothing to report. We know nothing about the family. We know he was born March 6, 1810, in Baltimore. The names of his parents, as I hinted, are unknown. In fact, some uncertainty about the Jones name exists, and it exists from Jones himself. In an 1852 novel he published, he had one character tell another, quote, sign yourself Simpkins, Thompson, Jones, Smith, or other common or uncommon name. At some point in his youth, Jones spent time in Kentucky and frontier Missouri. He probably was in the mercantile business. By 1840, when he was by then 30, he was back in Baltimore and editing a weekly newspaper. He also got married, and that simply adds to the mystery. This obscure, struggling writer wed Francis Custis of Accomack County on Virginia's eastern shore. She was a direct descendant of the famous Custis family, and George Washington was familiar with them. She was a good, blue, true blue member of Tidewater aristocracy and wealthy in her own right. Jones was 30, Francis was 31. It is obvious from his wartime diary that regardless of what brought the two together, their union was strong and loving and long-lasting. But this marriage quickly catapulted Jones into the circle of Virginia's politically elite. Henry A. Wise, a powerful figure in state politics and then master of the Eastern Shore, became one of Jones's strongest allies. President John Tyler uh, chose Jones to edit the Madisonian, the administration's official newspaper in Washington. 
and Jones became so bobbed in his anti-democratic comments that President Tyler had to tighten the leash around his editor and pull him back. After Tyler left the White House, Jones returned to Baltimore and turned full-time to writing novels. Many had a Western theme, and Jones becomes sort of uh, a forerunner, if you will, to Louis L'Amour and Larry McMurtry. Uh, Daniel Boone was always his central character, and Daniel Boone couldn't have lived to, do, uh, to be 200 and do as many things as Jones had him do in these diaries. Uh, the diaries were steady but not outstanding in sales. In the mid-1850s, Jones decided that Philadelphia offered a better, greater outlet for his writings. And so he moved his family, which now consisted of his wife, Frances, two sons, and two daughters, to the Philadelphia suburb of Burlington, New Jersey. With relations between North and South clearly widening, Jones, in 1857, kind of thumbed his nose at the public and started a newspaper in Philadelphia entitled The Southern Monitor. It was designed, he said, at the front page of, page of the first issue, to combat black republicanism and to repel assaults on southern whites and southern institutions. Well, he quickly found out that Philadelphia was not the city of brotherly love to all the brothers. <laughs> Philadelphians did not take kindly to this secessionist publication, and Jones seemed to delight in the controversies he generated. Uh, the more small but newsworthy they were, the more he magnified them. Sound familiar? <laughs> Secession came, and right behind it came war. Jones made up his mind to be at the center of the conflict. 51 years old, with 10, 20 years of moderate success as a journalist and a writer, he left his family and journeyed alone to Richmond for the avowed purpose of getting a job, a prominent job if at all possible, and to keep a day-by-day -day journal of the great Southern effort at independence, which, once that Southern effort was successful, would make his diary a bestseller for sure. Thanks to the influence of ex-President Tyler and ex-Governor Wise, Jones received appointment as a clerk in the War Department in Richmond and he became part of the heart of the Southern Confederacy. One writer characterized Jones as, quote, a dry, antisocial, rather crabbed, virtuous little man. Uh, that might have been partially so. However, as history shows time and again, introverts keep the best diaries, and Jones was an introvert. <coughs> he constantly displayed an insatiable curiosity about war matters. And this made him susceptible to rumors, which in turn makes his diary an excellent reservoir for the unfounded reports that course through the parlors of Richmond for the war's entirety. He was also a man of very strong prejudices. His anti-Semitic views border on paranoia. And indeed, it, it gets rather boring, the anti-Semitic views that he expressed. But you must remember in the early 19th century, Anti-Semitism was quite popular in every corner of the nation. And besides that, Jones was not merely anti-Semitic, he was also anti-Catholic, anti-Northern, anti-Republican, and anti-upper class. <laughs> so he just didn't like a whole lot of many people. <laughs> and amazingly, and amidst all of these negative biases, 
Jones comments amazingly little about American blacks and the institution of slavery. He was also a very poor judge of leadership. He tended to fave bureaucratic and military incompetence, a military incompetence such as Henry Wise and John Floyd, over such, quote, quote, northern imports as Josiah Gorgas and others. Be that as it may, Jones was a confidant to five successful secretaries of war. Because so many military dispatches crossed his desk, Jones was able to quote reports 30 years or more before they appeared in print in the great 128-volume official records of the Union and Confederate <laughs> Armies, which are, for the professional historians like myself, the Bible for us when we're doing Civil War history. Indeed, on occasion, Jones even cited communiques that never made it into the official records. And a very important July 9, 1863 telegram uh, from uh, Jackson, Mississippi to Richmond from Joseph E. Johnston is a case in point. Now, being literally in the center of the War Department and its affairs gave Jones a clear view of the, all the strife that took place, the jealousies that were there, the backbiting, the vanities out of control, the egos that were pushing the Confederacy slowly to doom. He watched the war, the various departments, particularly the War Department and the commissary departments go at it. He watched the Treasury Department and all of its illegalities. He watched rivalries in the Cabinet and the Congress and among the generals. In addition, Jones followed the war not only through personal observations and written reports and overheard comments, but also from the newspapers he digested daily and he also heard things from congressmen who told him what was transpiring in the silent, in the secret sessions of the legislature. Uh, you may not be aware of that. The Confederate Congress met in secret session. It's only been in recent years we've begun to get a good view of exactly what they did, or more importantly, what they did not do. Always was Jones a tough, combative judge who used language often colored by anger and prejudice. Jones loved the Southern Confederacy. He loved it blindly, but he once asserted, never before did such little men rule over such a great people. He dismissed the Congress as incompetent and cowardly. It ran to cover, he said, at the first appearance of danger. Martial law never kept Richmond fully under control. On one occasion in 1863, Jones wrote that protesting citizens grew so large that the Senate voted not to convene and the House adjourned after the opening prayer, everybody taken for cover for fear the mob would get them. Jones's sharpest stabs were at individuals. Initially, he was very laudatory of Jefferson Davis, but as the years went by, the, the positive changed to negative. And finally, by 64, Jones was writing that Davis was, quote, a small specimen of statesmen and, of no, and certainly no military chieftain. Treasury Secretary Christopher Memminger, he thought was guilty of corruption and smuggling. Secretary Judah Benjamin, the highest ranking Jew in the Confederate cabinet, habitually, said Jones, sold passports to Union spies and was, quote, a thorough rascal and liar. Only speaker John Boehner has been worse. Oh, <laughs> Uh, 
Jones once noted that his boss, Secretary of War's James Seven, quote, looks like a dead man galvanized into muscular animation. His eyes are sunken and his features have the hue of a man who has been in the grave a full month. <laughs> Yet one must bear in mind, I think, that beneath all these harsh words were the anxieties of a father with a family trying to eck out a living and survive on a small salary all inside the most inflationary economics in American history. And Jones had much to say about the inflation in Richmond. In September 1863, he noted, a history of the household goods we possess would be interesting to haberdashers. I think we have articles belonging in their time to 20 different families. February 1864. We look for a healthy year, everything being so cleanly consumed that no garbage or filth can accumulate. We are all good scavengers now, and there is no need of buzzards being in the streets of Richmond. <laughs> he continually criticized speculators and extortioners who profited at the expense of the poor and cared little about the outcome of the Civil War. And those speculators and, they extort and those extortioners were always there. I've always admired Margaret Mitchell for the character, the main male character she created for Gone with the Wind. What did Rhett Butler do for a living? He was a black marketeer. He was an extortioner, a speculator. She couldn't have cast it more correctly. In September 1864, a Richmond and Danville train arrived at the Capitol. It had nine cars loaded with goods. Two were consigned to the government. The other seven belonged to private businesses who were shipping them in for resale. Unlike other diarists of the time, Jones called attention to rumors sweeping through the city. In 1863, many Richmond citizens became convinced that hungry Union prisoners of war at Belle Isle were planning an escape and they were going to join down on Curry Street with hungry Richmond citizens, and there was going to be this collaborative takeover of the government of Richmond, and there would be rout and suffering widespread. But certainly the human suffering in wartime Richmond was severe, so much so that Mrs. Chestnut chose to ignore it all in her journal. When Jones occasionally mentioned himself in his diary, you watch helplessly, as his health deteriorates. And you simply watch the entries go by and you see a, a developing obituary, if you will. July 1863. We are in a half-starving condition in Richmond. I have lost 20 pounds. April 1864. This, this is famine we are experiencing. January 1865. What I fear most now is starvation. And he was not exaggerating. A month later, February 65, General Lee, in a rare display of anger, told his son Custis, Well, I have been up to Richmond to see the Congress, and they do not seem to be able to do anything except to eat peanuts and chew tobacco while my army is starving here. In 1864, late in October, I believe it is, with Jones' immune system greatly lowered, by lack of nourishment, with filth rampant throughout the city, with 300,000 people living in a town where 38,000 had been, Jones contracted 
what is called, or then called, poor man's disease. It's a bacterial disease. Sometimes you hear it called consumption. You and I know it better as tuberculosis. April 2nd through 3rd, 1865, as Confederate authorities and soldiers abandoned Richmond, uncontrollable fires erupted. Some 800 buildings, including all of the downtown, went up in flames before Union soldiers marched into Richmond and brought the flames under control. And the cremation of the capital city was symbolically the burial of the Southern Confederacy. The end of the war found Jones alone, impoverished, homeless, his health failing slowly. For a short time, he went to the Eastern Shore and lived in what was left of the Custis estate. The home had been ransacked and abandoned, but there he avoided arrest from federal officials who surely would have brought him to trial for war crimes as a War Department secretary. But he stayed basically hidden away on the Eastern Shore for a few months. And then an old affluent friend, Edward Grubb, heard of Jones's predicament and insisted that Jones move the, move, come to the Grubb Mansion in Burlington, New Jersey, where he had once lived, and the Grubb family had befriended him in earlier years. So Jones accepted the offer in part because, one, it would get him out of Virginia, get him to safety. Uh, two, it would give him a home and food. And thirdly, he hoped, with what time he had left, to persuade the influential firm of J.B. Lippincott in Philadelphia to publish his wartime journal. And to his delight, Lippincott looked at a sample and accepted uh, the diary for publication. Work, Jones then worked feverishly on the diary as trying to bring it up, trying to put it in good shape, if not better shape, trying to get everything else done while tuberculosis uh, took its toll. A newspaper reporter visited him just days before his death, and the reporter noted, the last four years of trial, deprivation, suffering, and sorrow had whitened his looks and bowed his form, while a relentless disease wasted him almost to a shadow. Uh, you can't see anything from it, but this is the one photograph we have of Jones, and it was taken literally just days before his death. And if you look at it closely, you can see death. You can see all the, the blankness of the eyes, uh, the, shower, the white figure, the skeletal physique, and on his lap, he most pitifully, is a towel with the blood smears he, from blood he's coughing up as his lungs uh, slowly uh, give out on him. John B. Jones died February 4th, 1866. Still penniless, he was buried in the Grubb Family Cemetery in Burlington, New Jersey. Lippincott published a two-volume diary later that year. Sales were not good, for obvious reasons, and the personal encyclopedia of events quickly went out of print, and the original handwritten manuscript was destroyed. Not until the early 20th century did scholars begin combing through the great mass of Civil War literature that had erupted. All these regimental histories, all of these personal memoirs are coming out in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. Uh, they're just coming out, being put on shelves. Nobody paid much attention to them. And then around 1914, thereabouts, scholars began to go through this stuff with a, an historiographical eye. And the most famous of these, more or less the Pathfinder, was the great Columbia University scholar James Ford Rhodes, who first went through and tried to catalog in some order 
this Civil War literature, and then it was that the Jones Diary suddenly popped up. He had followed the uh, traditional code of his day by referring to individuals uh, by initials, like SDB, or not referring them to anything but uh, blank space. Uh, the chapters had no organization to them. The diary was just spilled out. And, and worst of all, as uh, my friend Paul pointed out in his much-appreciated introduction, there's no index to it. And when, I, when I'm doing research and I grab a book, first thing I do is look in the back to see if it's got an index. And then I kind of pause a little while to see how much time I want to waste going through this book. I think anyone who comes out with a book without an index should have the book recalled and burned. It's just uh, useless. It's just useless. So that, that was this great work. And immediately, the professional scholars began to praise it for its inclusiveness, for the, the depth in every direction in which it went. But then the historians began to discover a great weakness. On occasions, Jones had actually added to the diary facts and opinions he could not possibly have known at the time he professed to record them. That he was guilty of what we call interpolation is incontestable. The extent of the crime, however, remains questionable. Sometimes Jones went back through the journal a day or so after events and expanded his entries. Nothing wrong with that. This is a common practice. Some of his page-long summaries are obviously too lengthy to have been written in one day. I don't know what he did at the war office if he didn't write in his journal. <laughs> There's just no way he could have kept on going all that day with a pen and a, and a ink uh, bottle. Uh, on the other hand, he was writing so much for each day that revising previous entries were at least afterthoughts, or at most injurious. It would have been better if Jones had made no post-war revisions. In the last six months of 1865, he was one, pressed for time, two, living a gypsy-like existence, three, fighting a losing battle with tuberculosis. The pressures on him were enormous. Simply put, in the rush to publication, Jones became a bit slipshod. He appears to have done a hit-and-miss cleanup of his manuscript. And when you consider that he is writing quill on parchment, uh, that manuscript must have been about so, so deep with all those hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pages. And I'm sure, as is human nature, he would flip through occasionally and see something and maybe expand upon it. But he overlooked his own mistakes at times. Initially, he reported a great Confederate victory at the 1863 Battle of Stones River, Tennessee, then acknowledged two days later, well, it was a defeat. If he was really going after editing, he would have taken out the first mistaken statement. Henry Wise, his benefactor, never slipped from the obelisk on which Jones put him, though Wise was a less than competent general in the field. On May 19, 1861, he described his first days in the War Department by writing, I was happy in the discharge of these duties and worked assiduously day and night. It is unlikely that he would have made such an entry after three days on the job. I mean, you would expect that to have come with time. The occasional interpolations or annoyances, not obstructions. 
Jones wrote for inclusion rather than for inspiration. In the war office, he sat at the clearinghouse of important correspondence and conferences. His alert eyes and ears missed nothing. Although he could be spiteful and small-minded, Jones had a keen sense of history. His biases did at times warp his judgments. They also shaded him, however, from the glare of heroes and sharpened his gaze on the pretentious he met. Jones was honest as both a clerk and a diarist. He produced an eyewitness encyclopedia of the Southern Confederacy. And for 50 years it has remained in the shadows, unexplained, underappreciated, its lack of annotation and indexing, index listing its use. To only the very patient and the very dedicated do you ever see it. Here is a copy of volume one of the original. And there was nothing to it. It's hard to even see which side is up. Inside you can see some of the tiny little type that go along with the pages. And I hold this dearly to my heart because my set of Jones came from my second father, Mr. J. Ambler Johnston, who was a longtime director and a longtime benefactor of the Virginia Historical Society. And Uncle Ambler was a great uh, help to me when I came to the Virginia Tech faculty, from which he had graduated in 1901. Uh, when I came to Virginia Tech, he gave me a welcome party, and it was, you could not uh, consume alcohol in the town of Blacksburg, so we went off to a county restaurant. He threw a wingerdame that night. I met Uncle Ambler when he was chairman of the Richmond Civil War Centennial Committee, and I got him out of a couple of rough spots uh, during the centennial. I was with the Federal Commission, and uh, we just became extremely close friends, and as God and fate would have it, uh, within a span of two months, he lost his only son, and I lost my father. And the two of us just drifted together, and we just became father and son. I just loved him dearly. And I can all still hear him when he would call in the morning, some mornings, and we'd talk a long time. And then he would ring off by saying, well, you hurry up and come on down to Richmond and we'll talk a little history and drink a little whiskey. <laughs> and, uh, and we did a lot of both, I must admit. <laughs> a lot of both. And, and he sleeps today in Hollywood Cemetery. His father was a member of the Salem Flying Artillery, one of the more distinguished batteries in Virginia. But the diary certainly has deserved more than it has received. One historian has said, no other work in American history so thoroughly betrays the social, economic, and political trials of a nation struggling for survival. And when the fall of Richmond signaled the end, Jones closed his diary with the statement, I never swore allegiance to the Confederate States, but I was true to it. The Civil War history community should feel a deep indebtedness, I feel, to the University Press of Kansas. It went way out on investing the high cost of uh, reprinting the Jones Diary and adding all of my stuff to it. And my stuff consists of a long introduction. And as Paul told you, and I can illustrate, to show you how broad he was in his observations, how deep he went in every directions, to identify the places and the people and the events that he reported took 2,700 footnotes in a two-volume work, 2,700 footnotes. I've been on this diary for 15 years, off and on, 
trying to get it done, and now it is done. And the index contains not merely names, it contains full names as far as I could go to get them. And it contains subject names. So if you're looking for prisons, medicine, religion, etc., go to the index. It is now a usable book. And I put that in capital letters because I think that is what gives it value. And now it's true worth to the community as it long lasts here. I think this new edition, which has all the tools to make it usable, uh, will elevate a Rebel War clerk's diary to one of the five basic references for the Southern Confederacy, if not for the Civil War as a whole. And so I am happy and I am proud to have made this lasting gift to the historiography of America's defining moment, its Civil War. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, I welcome questions. Uh, so long as you don't ask politics, I promised my wife I, I would not talk on <laughs> politics. Yes, ma'am. Did he ever get back with his wife and children in Philadelphia? Uh, yes, his wife and his wife and I think two of the children came to Philadelphia, and they were with him at the end. Uh, his oldest son. Uh, uh, George Custis Jones, I think his name was, became a minister. And uh, the, the uh, man who wrote the master's thesis on, on Jones in South Carolina, it was a thesis on him as a novelist. So I wasn't, uh, he was separated from me. Had met the granddaughter. And it was from the granddaughter he got the uh, illustration. And I just stumbled upon the master's thesis because it was a thesis done in English, English literature, not history. And I just stumbled upon it. And, and done in 1937. And it contained a lot of first-hand information. And then there's a small collection of letters uh, that Jones wrote his wife, which she saved. And uh, I didn't mention this, but it's kind of interesting. Apparently, he was a, a hellraiser as a young man. And then he met Francis. And in one of his letters, he tells her, I promise you, I will go on the straight and narrow. I will not be like I was, etc." So he must have been a real swinger at one time. So, uh, <laughs> He doesn't come through as that in, as the diary. He just comes through as a, as a kind of a humorless old man, which he really is not. He lived in a totally negative atmosphere, wartime Richmond. There was absolutely nothing to be happy about in, in the city at that time. It's swollen in, in population, inflation running out of sight. Uh, he was making $3,000 a year. A pound of butter cost $25 in 1864. A bushel of corn was $1,000 when you could find one. Now, this is just inflation on food uh, taking place. As a city, it was starving the whole time. Uh, so, but uh, I think he would be happy to know that his diary lives on and that he did succeed in the greatest undertaking of his life. Francis uh, did not live long thereafter. I don't remember the death date, but by 1880, I think she was gone. And I could find very, very little about her. I wanted to go down to the Eastern Shore and I, I tried making contacts a couple of times. There's a member of the Custis family, still alive there, who is called the family genealogist, and I wanted badly to talk to him, and I just never could get the opportunity to do so. I'm not even sure he's alive. 
So I missed that point in the research. Yeah, fascinating uh, firsthand observer, uh, Dr. Robinson. You are as knowledgeable as anyone about the Civil War. In working with uh, Jones's work in its entirety and organizing it and so on, did anything jump out that added to your body of knowledge or alter your perception of events or people? Yes, sir. And I've alluded to this in passing several times. Uh, the condition of affairs in Richmond. You know, I'm a Confederate historian, basically. And I was having lunch not long ago with my dear friend Emory Thomas. And many of you know Emory. He retired from Georgia a few years back. And we we're very close friends. And we're both bemoaning the fact that in graduate school, there are very, very few, if any, students now studying Confederate history. Maybe they're scared to death of political correctness. I don't know why it's so idiotic. <laughs> I don't know who would take it seriously. But nonetheless, finding Confederate historians today are, are few and not going to be many. I think the, the disruption inside the Confederate government shocked me. I expected more unity than that. But Jefferson Davis seems to have been a lone nationalist. He was a states' rights man. But Davis at least had the forethought to see when the war began that 11 of us can't fight the Union Army. 11 states can't take on this mighty force the North is going to bring against us. We need to come together and fight as one nation. But the states' rights governors wouldn't do it. And some of the telegrams and letters Davis got from governors such as Zebulon Vance in North Carolina, Joe Brown in Georgia, you know, sound like they came through the enemy lines. They're so bitter and, 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 and carping. And Davis was just one of those pitiful individuals that had a hard time getting along with people. And he just suspected the motives of anyone who had less than the burning patriotism in his heart. And so he's dealing with congressmen that don't give a hoot about national patriotism. They're interested in that constituency, and that's as old as democratic government. Uh, so that, that's there. Uh, the, the various departments fighting each other. It was just chaos in the Confederate government, and it led Jones to say something about, I never knew such small people could be put in charge of such a great nation. Uh, and I think that's the biggest shock I had with him. Finding some of those names was, was incredible, but uh, he mentioned once an SMD, a merchant in Vicksburg. And I thought, good grief, I don't know, know anything about Mississippi Archive and even less about the town of Vicksburg. But I did remember I had a friendship, a passing friendship from uh, leading bus tours off the Delta Queen of the Vicksburg battlefield. I had met the guy alone on a local museum. I can't even remember, I think his last name was Strong, but his first name was Bubba. And so, <laughs> I, I, I just sent a letter to Bubba Strong, Vicksburg Museum, Vicksburg, Mississippi, and off it went. And I got a response from him, about two pages. Guy's name was Samuel Michael Dickinson. He did all this stuff as well. And, and it, everything just went well. But I also, while I'm on the subject, need to pay homage to one of the finest National Park Service historians we have, Mike Gorman. I don't know if Mike is here. I don't want him to raise his hand and get embarrassed. But I could not have done the Jones book without Mike and his knowledge of wartime Richmond. He knows more about what was going on in this town in four years and where it was taking place than anybody who ever lived or ever will live. And it was Mike who came to the rescue time and time again when I got blocked. We know, thanks to Mike, that Jones lived first on 
is it Gray Street where Linden Row is? He lived in the Linden Row area. And we know later on, about 63 or 64, he moved over on Clay Street. And that's where he was. Uh, one of the things that shocked us all, Jones had a, a colleague in the War Department, and his name was Jack, J-A-C-Q-U-E-S. And I combed everything I could find, and I couldn't come up with anything. And I finally got Mike into it, and I kept remembering that this, this original was written by hand, what rhymes with Jack? And I started looking up Jacksons and uh, any, Jenkins, anything. And then Mike Gorman came to the command and said, to, the, to the rescue and said, he is referring to an Edwin Jones, J-O-Y-N-E-S. And you go back through and now all these Jacks suddenly become Ed Jones. And it's the kind of thing, it makes a diary more and more valuable when you can, when you can come up with the identification. You know? I hope we've got, I think there were four instances uh, where I just could not identify a person. Uh, other than that, I think I deserve a pretty good grade for 2,700. Can you comment at all about what John, Jones might have written about the high-ranking Confederate generals? About what are you written about whom? About the high-ranking Confederate generals. Uh, he worshipped Lee, which hardly is, is, is a surprise. Uh, he, he, he had been uh, in politics, which uh, kind of uh, uh, warped his judgment to an extent. When the war began, I, I think Jones felt that uh, in, any good politician make a good general. <laughs> uh, um, and so he had a high opinion of John B. Floyd, the incompetent uh, Secretary of War who began on in Buchanan's administration. Uh, he had a high opinion of Henry Wise, who might have been a good governor. Uh, he was a loose cannon, however, as a general, and that's the best compliment I can pay him as, as he grew up. He, um, he, he paid a lot of attention to a man's background. That Josiah Gorgas was from Pennsylvania. It was all-consuming to Jones. He expect, suspected his loyalties immediately, but it was Gorgas, who was a miracle worker in the Ordnance Bureau. Lee's army might have been starving to death on the retreat to Appomattox, but its cartridge bags were full. Its muskets were loaded, thanks to Josiah Gorgas. So, you know, he erred badly in that. But he never got into uh, um, uh, downgrading one, say, Longstreet, at the expense of the other, say, Jackson. In fact, uh, I found his reporting of Jackson's death very disappointing. It was almost a passing reference to it, and I don't understand why. Uh, but again, that's just the, the thing. But he stayed a lot, spent a lot of time with cabinet members, most of whom he distrusted him, many of whom were, may have been guilty. He accused uh, Secretary of Treasury Christopher Memminger so many times of corruption and complicity that you have to think he was right on one or two occasions. <laughs> you know, you know, such as that. And selling passports, which he thought Judah Benjamin as Secretary of State was doing, uh, was, was a popular thing. Everybody got along with that. Uh, the provost marshals made a fortune out of doing it. But, uh, so I don't think you can put all the blame of that on one, one individual. So, but his characterizations of the individuals are, are quite good. And the revelation he gives us from the secret Confederate Congress are excellent, just excellent. The things we didn't know that they were doing, now, more especially that they, they weren't doing as a Congress. <clears throat> 
Jones had a problem with the um, conscription, and he did some calculations to uh, of the manpower that the South would have had if it conscription had been done correctly. And he was like 800,000, I think. Did he get his gazentas right? Uh, did he actually wrote President Davis twice. <coughs> uh, and in one communique, his son, his oldest son, had done a long research, <coughs> excuse me, a long, done long research <coughs> into the manpower of the South. And had come up with figures. And I think 800,000 was a figure he used. If conscription had been done, followed uh, fully, uh, Davis paid no attention to it, of course, because you couldn't enforce conscription from the beginning. It was one of the worst acts the Confederacy tried to undertake. It immediately found 11 major oppositions and the governors uh, who did not, who resented uh, the fact that, that uh, this, this so-called national government would come into the state and pull their, their boys into the army. You know, uh, you can make a good case about the Confederate battle flag and saying it wasn't the Confederate battle flag. It was Virginia's flag, the 28th Virginia, or the 14th North Carolina, or the 3rd Georgia is carrying its flag, which has the same design, but that flag is a state flag. Now, you can, you can carry on about that if you wish. But conscription just was not going to work, and it created uh, a lot of opposition especially when the Congress then turned around and passed all these exemption laws, one of which said that any, uh, any slaveholder who has 20 or more slaves is exempt from coming, going into the war. So immediately from the poor man comes the cry of hell. This was a poor man's uh, war and a, a fight and a, and a rich man's war, and the rich man is waging the war, and what's poor guys are having to do with fighting? That's not fair. So uh, Jones saw the, uh, the failure of conscription, and he railed against it time and time again, but it just was a bill that no had a chance of success. One more question. Uh, you mentioned that uh, Jones had two sons, one of whom eventually became a minister, but it must have been very awkward for his family to be in the North. Were the sons ever conscripted, or did they ever fight? In the, in oh, I'm the sorry. Uh, the, the family joined him in about two months after the war began. Okay. Yeah, the family came to Richmond. And in fact, he got his oldest son, Custis, uh, a job in the War Department with him. And they lived in, on Gray Street, Grace for a time, and then most of the war they were over on Clay Street. The family was together. Occasionally, Mrs. Uh, Jones would go down to Newburn, where she had a brother who was a physician, and she would go down and stay with him. And on one, one occasion, perhaps two, when Richmond was seriously threatened, uh, Jones sent them by rail to Newburn to safety. But the family was always here with them. Uh, and the oldest uh, Jones boy, Custis, was actually conscripted into the local militia, the home guards, so to speak. And he just detested every moment of it. And at one point in, in Jones's private letters, uh, he just railed at this lad for his lack of patriotism to the cause. And uh, he was dragging his feet about being a soldier when he should be proud to be a soldier for the, for the Confederacy. So, um, but the family was intact in Richmond for most of the war. And I don't understand why he went alone to the Eastern Shore after the surrender uh, and nobody accompanied him. I have to think that Mrs. Jones and the children somehow went back to Newburn again because Sherman had passed his 
past our coming north, and if the Jones could reach Newburn, they were safe. So I, I'm assuming they left Richmond before the conflagration of April 65, and he was there alone when, when the end came. But uh, again, when the end comes, you know, here's a man who's already dying, and he knows he's dying, no question about that. And he's just working feverishly to complete this journal, the likes of which he thought uh, no one would ever see again. And on that point, he was correct. There are diaries in the Civil War by the hundreds, but there's only one J.B. Jones, a rebel war clerk's diary, and at long last, we can say it's usable. Thank you very much. Thank you.